when I saw that at a pastor's conference about a year ago, and I've been waiting for a chance to record it. There you go. Uh, I like motivational stories. I do. And I know that many of you would, would be cynical or are cynical about motivational movies and books, and, and you tend to, uh, tend to think they're a little bit corny. I, I get that. But uh, honestly, I, I get kind of choked up when I see those kind of clips. Uh, I like the storyline of a hero who is tempted to give up in the, in the face of tremendous obstacles and, and terrible tragedies. But in his lowest moment, or in her lowest moment, someone comes along and encourages that person to keep fighting, to persevere, to, to eventually reach his or her dreams and live happily ever after. I like those kind of stories, those kind of stories. And usually the person who comes along to encourage the hero is someone that that hero respects or loves. It could be a spouse, or a teammate, or a coach, or a teacher, or a commanding officer. And that person gives the hero a pep talk in their lowest moments. And I know that, again, for many of you, that, that is corny, that, that sort of a story feels terribly predictable. But in, in the scope of human history, it's actually a fairly new development. See, for up until the, about 2,000 years ago, most stories about the human condition were either depressing or unrealistic. So the Greeks had two basic kinds of human dramas. They had comedies and tragedies. Comedies were funny, but they were unrealistic. Tragedies were realistic, but they weren't very funny. And then about 2,000 years ago, a new story came along. The story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since then, since that story, humans who have heard it have been dissatisfied with the old kinds of stories. We still believe that sin and evil are real, but now we believe that hope is real, and that our lives have value and meaning and purpose. And so we still want stories that realistically depict the problems and the obstacles and the tragedies of life. But at the same time, we also want stories where people encourage each other and come alongside each other to say, don't give up, don't lose hope, keep fighting, keep persevering, because ultimately your circumstances will be redeemed. And you will live happily ever after. And that is exactly the kind of story that Scripture says that we are in as believers in Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is almost to the end of the Bible. So if you are flipping there and you get to 1st or 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, you've gone too far. Flip back a little bit. But you're, you're almost to the end of the Bible. If you have a tablet that's easy enough, just type in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 11. This is one of my favorite motivational speeches in the Bible. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. And again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice. 
for sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the place where God is, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised us is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Then hop down to verse 32. Remember those earlier days when you had received the light, and you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. I love the book of Hebrews. I think this passage summarizes the book, basically. But the theme of the book of Hebrews, the whole book, the theme of the book is the greatness of of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Jesus. Hebrews starts out by saying that Jesus is the radiance and the exact representation of God. The idea is that if God the Father is like the Son, Jesus is like this beam of light that radiates out from Him, and, and it like reflects back to Him. And so when God looks at Himself in the mirror, the first thing He sees is Jesus Christ. He looks at Jesus and He sees Himself. Jesus is the exact representation, the exact image of God. And, the, and Hebrews goes on, it says that Jesus upholds all things by His power, by His powerful Word. That means that for Jesus to create and to sustain the universe, it's as easy for Him as talking. He, he doesn't have to strain, it's not like, Argh! I create the universe. No, He doesn't have to do that. He says, let there be light, there's light. Let there be the universe. Let it exist, let it continue to exist. And it does, it's that easy for Him. And because Jesus is the creator of the universe, because he's the son of God, Hebrews says that he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels, and yet he became like us in every way. He took our flesh and blood like us, he became a human like us in order to be a merciful and a faithful high priest. To understand our weaknesses and our temptations. And then to offer his life, his perfect life, as a sacrifice to make atonement our sins. Atonement means to cover, to remove, to take them away. See, in the ancient times, people would offer sacrifices to God to try to somehow cover their sins. But the reality is those sacrifices could not remove sin. It was like swiping a credit card. It just postponed the debt. It didn't pay it. Until finally Jesus came along and Jesus paid that debt, the debt of sin, once and for all time. Hebrews says it's done, it's completed, it's finished. And therefore, as believers in Jesus, those who trust in Him, whose sins have been wiped away, the author of Hebrews says we need to do four things. Four things. First, in verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God 
with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So first, we need to draw near to God. We need to do it sincerely. Don't fake it. Don't pretend. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't, don't, don't try to do it to impress other people. Come to Him sincerely, trusting in Him, having faith that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Come to God and then come with full assurance. Come with a humble confidence that Jesus has done everything needed to make the way for you to go to God. Everything has been done. Everything has been accomplished. You don't have to have offer sacrifices. You don't have to act guilty and, 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 and penitent, penitent and whip yourself. You just come to God humbly and confidently, trusting that the barrier of sin between you and God has been removed by Jesus, and that therefore you can come to God as a loving Father. And if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to purify you from all righteousness. So draw near to God with full assurance. But then the author tells us to do something else in verse 23. A second thing. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised us is faithful. Hold unswervingly to the hope. Now, hope is not a tangible thing, right? You can't, like, grab it. So what I think the author is saying here is I think he's talking about running a race, running a marathon. So he says, hold unswervingly. The idea is keep that hope before you keep it in your mind. Keep the finish line in front of you and hold on to that as you run the race of faith. As you run the marathon, keep thinking about the finish line. Keep thinking that Jesus is faithful and he will reward me. He, he, I will spend eternity with him. And so you keep that hope and you keep running towards it without getting into tiredness. Without giving into distractions, you keep the objects of, of your desire, of your goal, before you, in front of you. Recently, a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a woman in our church who runs marathons. And for me, running a marathon is very strange. It's, it's, about, it's about as odd as going to the moon for me. Uh, I don't run very much. I, I, I run after my kids at the park. I, I sometimes run to the bathroom. I, I run to the refrigerator. Uh, and I don't really run for the, you know, just for, for the joy of it, I guess. And so I was at least about like 25 miles or whatever these people run. So I was asking her, what is it like to run a marathon? You know, tell me about it. And she said, well, it's, uh, it's easy when you start. Man, somebody answered your phone. Now wait. Oh, wait. All right, good work. So she said, when you start the marathon, uh, it's easy because you're excited, it's early in the morning, it's cool, and all the runners are together. So you take off, and you're running together, and it feels good. But she said, the hardest part is in the middle of the race. Because by that point, the runners have spread out, and usually you're all by yourself, and your mind begins to play mental games with you. And you know that you, you still have 12... 13, 14, 15 more miles, you're, you're, you're tired, and your mind begins to say, man, you can't do this. It's not worth it. You still have a long way to go. There's no way we're going to make it. Just, just slow down. Just pull off to the side, man. Don't keep going. And as I was listening to her tell me about that, I thought, man, that sounds a lot like running the race of faith, like the Christian journey, right? Because when we start, at the beginning, it's pretty easy. Hey, it's exciting. I think God, for whatever reason, He gives us a lot of grace initially. He shows us that He's real. And he encourages our faith. He waters the garden of our faith. It's like, yeah, you know, we're all together. And we're, we're at Lake Humor or whatever. We're holding hands, arms. Not hands, but we, you know, we have to hold hands. We're holding arms, holding arms. And it's cool. And it's fun. And it's exciting. We're like, yeah, we've got this journey ahead of us. Take the world for 
But somewhere in the middle of the marathon of faith, when you're by yourself and it's tiring and that, that hope that you tried to keep before you, it begins to feel very unreal, very vague. And I don't think it's just our own minds that do it to us. I think, I think Satan is desperately trying to keep you from finishing the race of faith. And so his demonic emissaries are whispering lies to you. They're saying, man, you're not going to make it. That reward that you're running for, it's not real. It's not there. No, it's home. And then they begin to tempt you with distractions. And they try to twist your desires and, and bend them towards sin. And, and, and they bring storms of conflict and suffering that blow against you. And that are, that are very hard to run into the wind. And you're tired. And in the midst of those attacks, God and the hope of faith can seem very, very distant. It's very tempting to turn aside and just give up and say, man, I can't do this. And so the author of Hebrews recognizes that. And he says that the, the solution to that is to trust God to keep his promises. Trust God's promise that he will help you in the middle of grace. That when you're tired, when you're exhausted, you don't feel like you can go on. That if you ask, if you depend on God, he will give you the strength. He will give you the resources to keep going. Trust him. And then trust him that he will give you the prize of eternal life with Jesus Christ when you reach the finish line, when you reach the end of the race. Keep trusting. Don't give up. Don't give in to those lies. But you're probably thinking to yourself, man, that's hard. And it is. It's hard to do that in the middle of the race. The reality is that on your own, I think it's virtually impossible on your own to trust God over a long period of time. To run that race all by yourself and to finish the race to trust God. We need the help of other Christians. And the author of Hebrews recognizes that. And so he tells us to do a third thing. You can't count four, three. A third thing in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The idea here is that we need to help each other trust God and keep running towards our hope. We can't do it on our own. You may be able to run a physical marathon by yourself, but you cannot run the race of faith by yourself. You will not complete, complete the race without help from others. And the word here for consider, it's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, when, he, when the author tells us to consider Jesus Christ. The idea is that we're to, in the Greek, the word here it means to meditate, to reflect, to study, to think deeply about Jesus. But here, we're to consider each other. Literally, the grammar in the Greek says, consider one another how we may spur on to love and good deeds. Consider one another how we may spur on to love and good deeds. That's, that's I know, bad English, but it's good Greek. The reason it's important is this. The main object that is being considered here is one another. Not how to spur on to love and good deeds. That's secondary. That comes second. First, you consider each other. Then you consider how to spur on. And that is important because it keeps us from making superficial judgments about how to help each other. I put in your notes, before you think about how... You need to think very deeply about who. That's the author's point here. 
Before you think about how to help somebody, you better think very deeply about who they are. Before you run out on the bus and say, man, people need to be spurred on. You're looking around, you're like, hey, that lady has all kinds of problems. I have answers. Great, I'm going to spur her on. No, before you do that, stop. Think very deeply about who she is. Focus on her. Study her. Let her occupy your thoughts. Spend the week praying for her, thinking about her. Asking yourself questions about her, like, how is she doing? What are her circumstances like? What would it be like to be in her shoes? What are her joys? What are her struggles? Given what I know about her as a person, what would be the best way to encourage her and to help her pursue God with more energy and focus? That's what it means to think about who? To consider someone. And only then, after you consider who she is, can you then consider how to spur her on towards love and good deeds. The word spur on here in the Greek, it means to irritate, to provoke. And when it's used in the, in the context of human relationships, it usually has a negative meaning, right? When my kids provoke each other and irritate each other, I don't compliment them for that. It's not a good thing. But when it's used in the context of animals, it has a more neutral meaning. And I think the author is actually referring here, I think, to a horse race. And so in a horse race, if the, if the, the horse begins to slow down or begins to swerve and get distracted from the finish line, the, the rider will do something to spur that horse on. It may be something gentle. It may, you know, just shake the reins. And, I'm not a horsey guy. Okay, but you may shake the reins and say, go, horsey, go. I don't know. I'm too big to ride horses. You know and he may do something gentle, but if that doesn't work, to get the horse back on track to get him running, then he may do something a little bit more painful. He may whip it. He may use spurs to get that horse running again, to get it refocused. And that's what we're being told to do here. The point is that we cannot finish the race on our own. We need, to, we need to be thinking about each other, considering each other, and then spurring each other on because we all get tired. We all begin to slow down. We all begin to veer off the course. We spur each other on, sometimes gently, mostly gently, some, once in a while painfully. We say, man, let's get back on track. Now, let me be clear. You do not have to do this for every person that knows it. So we need to be doing this, yes. But you don't have to do it for every person here. We introverts are like, oh, I can't handle this. But I, I, I get it. I mean, I, when I hear messages like this, yeah, my thought is, man, that's too hard. There's too many of us. You don't have to do this for every person. But I believe, and I believe Scripture says this, that every believer needs someone, some ones, who are regularly considering him and encouraging him on the race of faith. Every believer needs that, and then every believer needs to be doing that for other people. How many Christians are called to do that? It's between you and God. We all have our different capacities. But we're all called to be, to be considering others and to be spurring each other on and to be receiving that from people as well, from other Christians. And that's why small groups are so important in a larger church. A small group, a covenant community where, where people have covenanted to pray and to consider each other on a regular basis. Where they say, we are going to be considering and praying for each other. And then they give permission to each other to spur each other on. And I think that giving permission is really important for here at Nova. I think that's something we struggle with. I think many of you are probably already considering people here on a regular basis. You're thinking about people. You're praying for people. You're, 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 you're just, you know, trying to put yourself in other people's shoes on a regular basis. 
And then once you've done that, you say, you know what, I want to speak into this person's life. I know they need some encouragement. I want, I want, to, I want to call their attention to something. I want to do it in love, and I've been praying for them. But I don't know if I have permission. I mean, they may take it the wrong way. And I, I don't know if I have permission to speak into their life. Well, then let's get in communities where we have that permission. Where you know that these people are praying for you and thinking about you. And they're not going to just rashly, superficially, you know, get into your business. But they love you, and they want to keep you running toward Christ, running toward the finish line. Let's be in those kind of communities. And so it's in that context then that the author tells us to do a fourth thing. Verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The idea is that we need to be together regularly. And one way to do that is to worship together corporately on Sundays, to come together. It's encouraging for believers to come together. To worship God together, to learn about God together, and to encourage each other corporately in a large group on Sunday mornings. Because we know that we're, we're in a church, we're together, we, we're, we're a community. And so when we see other Christians in our community coming on a regular basis, man, that's encouraging. It's exciting to know that it's a priority for all of us to worship God and to, to encourage each other. It's like, man, on the high point in my week, of our week should be worshiping together and encouraging each other. And that's why it's so discouraging. Let me step, step on some toes here. I like to do this. No, I don't. I don't want to step on toes. But I'm going to do it. That's why it's so discouraging when people are habitually late, when they skip frequently. It discourages us. Now you can say, oh, the pastor is saying that because he wants people to listen to him. No, I don't care. I don't preach to 10 people. It doesn't matter to me. But you know what? When we come together, we, we, each of us, we roughly know how many people are in our church. I know you don't keep track, you don't keep actual numbers in your head, but we roughly know what our church looks like when it's filled, when we have people, when all of us are together. And so when we come together on a Sunday morning and, and you, you've been considering people, you've been praying for people, you're like, man, we're going to get together, we're going to worship God, we're going to learn about God, and we're going to encourage each other. And you come together and Martin starts rocking out the guitar to lead us in worship, and you're like, well, we've got 25 people, awesome. priority. And then that pulls us down, those who are here. It's discouraging. It's not just between you and God about what time you arrive and when you come out to church on a regular basis. It's for all of us. We need that encouragement. So we need to be corporate. But we also, it's good to meet in small groups, and it's good even to meet, I would say, in informal gatherings, parties, picnics, that kind of stuff. That's great. I know that happens a lot here in Nova, but I would say this. We need to be intentional about encouraging each other in those contexts. Youth meetings, you know, whatever we are, I go at the beach. You know, I know that it's easy to make, to make you know, small talk. And that we do that a lot. We make a lot of small talk. We talk about sports and the weather. And, you know, I don't know what, what we all talk about. That's a good thing. Okay, small talk is good. I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, if you can't make small talk, you're going to have a lot of trouble in life. It's good to learn how to do that. It's a good life skill. But we got to go beyond that. So we got to go beyond just superficial conversation to deeper things and say, man, how are you doing? How are you doing in life? Or, or to take someone aside that you've been praying for and considering and say, man, you know, I, I know you were having some trouble with, with your son. How's that going? Oh, I've been praying for you all week. Can I encourage you? You know, whatever. We need to be going into those a little bit deeper. We need to be encouraging each other. There's too much at stake to not do it. The author here, he says, encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. The day he's talking about here 
The author says that we need to encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. And the reason we need to do that is because, uh, because the day that he's mentioning here is referring to the day Christ returns. And so there's a positive element to that. We need to, we need to be encouraging each other because Christ is, is coming back and that's exciting. That is the finish line, right? If the finish line, if you die, you'll go to be with Christ. But if, if Christ returns before you die, that's it. End of the game. Game over. This is great. So we should be encouraging each other as Christ, as we see the day of the Lord come, coming closer. But at the same time, there's a negative connotation here because the Bible is very clear that leading up to the day of Christ's return, there's going to be an increase in evil. Jesus says that the love of most will grow cold. Paul says that many professing believers are going to fall away from the faith. So we need to encourage each other to, to continue to look forward to Christ's return and be excited about that. But we also need to encourage each other to not let our love grow cold, to not give up, to not fall away. We need each other. God has designed for true Christians to persevere in our faith by means of one another. And yes, I believe in the, the perseverance of the saints. But true believers will seek fellowship with other believers and God will use those relationships, that fellowship, to cause them to, to persevere in their faith. That's how God has designed it to work. We cannot do it by ourselves. We were not intended to. You're not intended to be a lone major Christian. As the world gets closer to the return of Christ and Satan ramps up his attacks, professing Christians who are lone rangers, who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church, they're going to be dropping like flies. They're going to be falling away from the faith like crazy. They will not be able to hold on to the faith that they profess. So let's stay in close relationships with other believers. Let's keep considering each other and encouraging each other to trust God and to keep running the race of faith and, and holding on to our hope, our, the prize ahead. Now, the application for today is very specific. I have it in notes on the backside. I typically don't give real concrete applications. I prefer to keep them general because I believe that after God's word is taught, the Holy Spirit will take that word and will apply it to your specific circumstances. I don't know all your circumstances, so I'm gonna let, I like to let just the Holy Spirit do that. I like to keep my applications very general, but today I decided to make an exception. As a pastor here at NOVA, and, and part of our pastoral staff, our goal is to make sure that all, every person here is being considered and encouraged on basis. We don't want any Lone Rangers. We don't want anyone to come to church and say, man, I came and I listened, but I don't feel, it's like, no, I don't, I'm not getting, nobody cares about me, and I, I'm not praying for anyone else. We don't want that. We want every person here to have, have people praying for them and encouraging them to keep running the race of faith. So one of the ways that I, I would like to see that done is to make sure that we're doing that. And what I would challenge you this week to write down on a card, to think very carefully, then write down, who am I considering on a regular basis? Who here at NOVA am I considering on a regular basis? Am I thinking about deeply and studying and focusing on it and remembering and praying for it? on a regular basis. It should be your immediate family, for sure, your wife, your kids, if you have those, but it should extend beyond that. How much it extends is between you and God, again. But I would like to, I would ask that you would think about this week. Write that down. Who are the people that I'm considering and that I'm encouraging in their faith? Could be the people in your small group. It's fantastic. But write it down. 
And then the next step, which is the hardest step, I would say, I would ask you to email me that list. And I'll keep it confidential. But for me, that helps me know that, that these people at NOVA are being considered and prayed for on a regular basis. And then it helps me to identify people who are not being considered and prayed for and begin to pair people up. And so also on there, I'd like you to put whether you could extend yourself and take on another person or two or three to consider them on a regular basis and pray and, and talk and, and encourage them on a weekly basis. So that's what I would ask you to do this week, to, to make that list, to pray about it, make the list, email it to me, and then hopefully we can continue to make sure that, that people at NOVA are being considered and encouraged and able to run the race of faith together. Not hand in hand, because you guys don't like that, but on and on. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you are the God of all encouragements. That's what scripture says. We know that you are, or that you will someday hold us accountable for our, our actions. We understand that. But at the same time, Lord, we know that you're not just a distant God. He's just kind of up there critiquing us. But you are a loving Father who is every, at every moment encouraging us and seeking to, to help us. And, and amazingly, somehow, Jesus is actually praying to God the Father. And so there's, even in the Godhead, there's prayers being offered for us. We're being considered moment by moment by Jesus himself. Being prayed for by him and being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that, God. 